Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Hindu Studies podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. Uh, This is a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I have the delight of speaking with Dr. Theodora Wildcroft, who is an associate researcher in the Department of Religious Studies at the Open University. And uh, she's also the coordinator of the Center of Yoga Studies at SOAS uh, in London. Theodora, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We're talking about her brand spanking new book, uh, Equinox 2020. It's still warm uh, in my hands here. Um, It's a post-lineage yoga um, from guru to hashtag me too. So clearly a fascinating and and timely publication. Um, How do we dive in? Do you want to tell us how you went down this path? Like how did you end up studying post-lineage yoga? Um, yeah, that's a really good place to start because um, I just think it does explain the book a little bit. Um, actually, uh, the real story was uh, I was actually at uh, a festival, um, which wasn't a yoga festival at all, but there was kind of yoga was going on and other things were happening in this in, in this field. And I was actually with a with a friend of mine um, and you know, how you sit around at festivals sometimes putting the world to rights and talking things through and talking in depth about this, this, that, and the other. And I was kind of waving my hands around and saying, you know, why does nobody talk about this scene? And there's so much about, I think, the British counterculture that people think ended in about 1979. Um, and, it, and it really hasn't in many ways. Um, and the friend I was with said to me, look, Theo, either you do a PhD or you write a book, but you've got to do something about this. Um, and uh, that friend of mine was Graham Harvey, who uh, is a professor of religious studies at the Open University. Um, and uh, and I chose the PhD route quite simply because I knew that way there'd be a structure. You've done it, right? There's 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 a process, and and uh, uh, although you figure out a lot of that process yourself, you're figuring it out together with a group of people. Whereas if you set out just to write a book, where do you start if you haven't written one before? Um, so uh, Graham was like, okay, let's, you know, let's see how we make this happen. And then it was, as with many of these things, it's a long journey from that point onwards. Um, so, you know, in terms of getting the application and everything else, but my target that I set out to really talk about was kind of an informal network of mostly yoga teachers um, and other kind of movement professionals um, who were spending a considerable amount of time and energy being in these spaces where they weren't getting paid, you know, they were kind of living under canvas, they were spending a lot of time cleaning toilets and chopping vegetables and so on and so forth. And if, if you ask them why they were doing it, they would say, oh, this is, this is where I come to get filled up for the year. This is the place where I receive. And I thought that was really interesting in a place, like I say, where there's no money changing hands and, you know, they're, they're mostly kind of, you know, are doing a lot of uh, manual labor. Um, and it really got me thinking about communities of practice. And I think that within our understandings of yoga, often we default 
kind of teacher-student relationships um, in order to understand transmission of knowledge, which obviously is vitally important. But I wanted to look at this teacher-to-teacher transmission. Like how, how, how is your practice supported both as a teacher and as a practitioner over time um, by the people around you, basically? Um, what are people getting by being in these fields? That's a great sort of segue or introduction into the book. Um, so then um, you mentioned in passing British counterculture. So at some mm. point, maybe we'll clarify who, who the exact demographic yeah. is that you were looking at. But also tell us, um, tell us, um, yeah, who, like, who are these people and, and what did you end up doing for the book? What was, yeah, yeah. Know, what was your methodology, your data? Oh, yeah. Oh, well, it was kind of fun because, uh, you know, then, then uh, you know, with that, like with any PhD, then you start with a literature review, right? You start with what's already out there. And that may be kind of annoyed um, because there, was a, there wasn't a lot out there about living practice and living communities of practice and the way people actually work. And there's a lot understandably about the commercialized spaces of yoga, which I think is really important work, um, you know, and how terrible things like Lululemon are to the world and things like that. But, you know, what's actually happening in kind of schools and village halls and people's bedrooms and what people are learning from their aunties and, you know, all sorts of different kinds of communities that are just sharing practices in, 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 in outside of commercial spaces. Um, that's really what was interesting to me. And just because there isn't a formal hierarchy there, kind of which is, you know, I think when we think about modern lineages in particular, we're thinking about formal hierarchies of knowledge. Um, I wanted to really look at informal uh, hierarchies. And I was aided in that by a background in community studies. I was really lucky to do a, a master's at De Montfort with a lot of uh, really good scholars uh, from many different communities and, from, you know, some from the global south and lots of really good theories about how uh, indigenous marginalized and informal kind of groups share knowledge in different ways. Um, so then I, you know, as you can imagine, I spent a lot of time hanging out in fields and spending time with this community, but I, uh, I also did some, some case studies where I picked people who weren't necessarily the, the, you know, the best teachers or the most respected teachers, but I thought they had an interesting place and I, and an interesting relationship to their practice. And I wanted to figure out how that, how what they were doing in their practice um, on the mat or off kind of fed into and related to the way they taught and the people they are in the world. You know, that wider role sometimes I think that we are looking for as, as, as yoga teachers, like what's that wider thing you do in the world? Um, so that involved some fairly in-depth um, practicing together and interviews and those kinds of things. Um, and it was a very kind of deep dive. It was a very small community deep dive. And then I came out the other side of this and I was having these conversations with my supervisor and they were saying, well, what's, you know, what's unique about this culture compared to other things that have been studied in contemporary yoga? And they were saying, oh, it's anti-lineage. And I said, it's not in any way anti-lineage. A lot of these people have very strong connections to lineage. And they were saying, oh, well, it's, you know, well, what is it then? And I said, it's kind of it's post-lineage in the same way uh, that sometimes we used to talk in religious studies about post-Christianity. So there's an idea of post-Christianity, which is kind of an in, a move by the individual beyond the systems, but staying with the heart of the practice, if that makes sense. And this is a similar kind of movement to kind of away from the hierarchies that you started in. Um, you may well uh, maintain strong relationships with your own teachers, but you know, you're not just doing it because your teacher said it said it was so or you're not just believing what your teacher said particularly if 
you know, some of that knowledge is handed down and handed down and handed down in modern times in ways that maybe becomes out of date. Like I love Iyengar's light on yoga, for example, but I don't believe that twists detoxify your liver, right? Like there is, this knowledge is allowed to evolve. We can still honor the roots of the practice. We can still honor our teachers whilst allowing knowledge to evolve. So where do you get that knowledge from? How do you then kind of think about authenticity and authority in these spaces? Um, you know, and that led on to much bigger questions that all of a sudden I was thinking about yoga in a much bigger sense. And kind of, I was having conversations with yoga teachers around the world saying this, this has really interesting parallels with the way things work in lots of different yoga spaces. There's, um, there's so much, there's so many points of interest in what you say. I'm not even sure where to begin. Part of why big, it fascinates right? <laughs> me is because it's big, but also uh, in my personal biography, I've had lots and lots of connections with with uh, yoga studio owners, primarily mm. in Toronto, but now online. Mm. And uh, a lot of the training that I do, a lot of the courses that I do, who shows up but like teachers, mm. yoga teachers and people wanting to disseminate information. So it's so interesting. You know, just one quick clarification. Let me try and yeah. stay focused and then we can wax poetic a little <laughs> later. So post-lineage yoga, I yeah. like that you clarified that it's sort mm -hmm. of uh, in the sense of uh, sort of outside of the culture, but not divorced from it. Because, the, yeah. because maybe to the lay person or even well, maybe just to almost anybody, post-lineage yoga seems to suggest that this is a time after or mm. beyond, uh, you know, at the end of uh, lineal yoga has ended, you know, we're in the yeah. age of the last Dalai Lama, so to speak, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. you know, you know right? and, 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 and then yeah. this, this yeah. is now the yoga yeah. beyond, temporally beyond, beyond that. the time yeah. of lineage, lineage yoga. And for me, I understand, obviously understand, uh, what you're drawing at it's in my brain it's like tra trans lineal lineage yoga you know like it's it is there's, the a, there's, a, there's a trans there's definitely a trans thing yeah and maybe you know trans lineage would have been an interesting term maybe i should change it to that quick before um, anybody realizes <laughs> no 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 I, because it, because just for, just for the sake of clarifying for people who yeah, may think yeah, you mean yeah. a time yeah, beyond definitely. lineage yeah but I, I do think there's a moving beyond, not beyond lineage per se, but beyond like the, 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 the I think the early modern systems of yoga, um, as they moved into that transnational sphere, um, organized themselves in very specific ways in order to make that translation into the global sphere, right? And a lot of that, you know, you look at your, your, your Shivanandas, your Satyanandas and so on and so forth, they're they need to codify, they need to standardize, they get big, like there's, 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 you know, things get set in terms of systems in order to get as big as they get. And in order to make that jump beyond the kind of local grassroots, because, you know, you're kind of a Baba in India with kind of, you know, 12 devotees isn't going to be famous on a global stage, right? Yeah, and, so, and in the West, that's Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> and yeah. then you're at early Christianity eventually, yeah. right? Like, Yeah, and everyone's like, but this is the way it's all been done. And they said, well, no, maybe it's the way it's been done since 1930 in the global context. It's not even the way it's necessarily done in India today, you know. Um, and certainly it's really fun if you talk to, if you can get Jim Mallinson, uh, you know, from Soas talking about, the ways in which he's learned uh, Hatha Yoga with, you know, Sadhus in, in, in India and things. He's, he, you know, he's hung out with, with Babas and Sadhus and, and he spent time with them. And, and, you know, we've talked, we've taught endlessly about this concept because he will say that, um, you know, he knows of, of, of Sadhus who've, who've made a similar journey. You know, you, I think it's quite common to start out with one teacher and they are everything and they are the source of all knowledge. And there's a kind of adolescence in that beyond which, you know, many of us get to a point where we go, you know, my teacher was amazing, but 
Like he wasn't, he taught me everything he knew, but he didn't teach me everything I know. Like I'm allowed to take that knowledge further. But there's a little game that I play as well. Um, when I'm when I'm really when I'm demonstrating this concept, and I, and I I found ways to do it online, but it works better in person, because I think that when we're thinking about Guru Shishya in particular, you know that kind of really linear knowledge. Um, what we're also talking about is a very specific kind of knowledge. Like if you're talking about Vedic culture, or, you know, kind of oral, incredibly precious Sanskrit Sanskrit based culture, right? Each student in the line of transmission is a living library. It is your role as a student to be the living library of that tradition. Right? And that is a very different thing to trying to form community health practices that are suitable for different kinds of bodies and so on and so forth. And I think sometimes we think that we can apply this kind of, um, this Guru Shishya model to community health, but community health doesn't organize like that. It doesn't organize like that anywhere in the world. You know, you, you know, um, different kinds of Ayurvedic systems, for example, are based on kind of different kinds of institutions and peer knowledge and so on and so forth. So I do this game where I say, where I get people to do like a broken telephone thing where like, you know, when they're passing knowledge from one down the line, like one person, I use sign language to do it. So I give one person some sign language and then they have to teach it to the next person and I have to teach it to the next person. And if your aim is to get that knowledge transmitted through time, each person has to reproduce it as exactly as possible. And it's not the same thing as somebody saying, well, that doesn't work for my shoulder or actually, you know, I'm not going to get up at six o'clock in the morning because I'm not in my sore. I'm in Toronto. And, you know, I need my bones to warm up before I do practice. So, you know, so there's, we're also confusing pedagogical models with the intention, right? The intentions of yoga have changed. Um, in different places at different times. It's as well. certainly the outcomes, and I, I like yeah. that you make the distinction that you're not, you're not saying, and I don't think anybody would get that sense from your book. But for someone who's looking at post lineage yoga yeah. from Guru to Hashtag Me Too, yeah. you're not saying that parampara has no place. You're saying parampara has a very powerful role to play in the transmission yes. and dissemination in, in yes. scrupulous, uh, uh, rigorous, you know, mm. spiritual, uh, usually Sanskrit knowledge, yeah. but. I, what I'm hearing you say, which resonates with me on a number of levels, is that, um, you know, anecdote stories, okay? Like, yeah, yeah. so I, I recently, you mentioned James Malliston, and I, I just, I was glancing at the Yogic Studies website, and he has a seemingly mm -hmm. fascinating course there. I just finished teaching a course there, um, 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 Yoga and Hindu Mythology. This was the last yeah. week of the course. So I had an opportunity to interact with a lot of people in the yoga circuit. Mm. Um, and one question that came up, a couple times as well, who's your teacher? Mm. You know, who's your guru? Mm. And I would typically evade the question and say, what I'm teaching you is not for my guru. This is not parampara. This is not diksha. Yeah. Or I'd say, you know, spiritual name dropping is my thing. Or, yeah. you know, but the, but once in a while, they'll be like, oh, that invocation, that passage, what text is it from? And I said, well, the text is on the tip of the tongue because I was taught this. Right. Yeah. So there's this tension where you have yeah, yeah. in your training that, that obviously infuses Mm. Um, in many ways, your outlook, um, your insight into, into text pedagogy, but teaching in this space, being on a podcast, being in an online course, being in a public mm. talk, mm. that's not uh, within parampara. And so yeah. it, this, there's this beautiful uh, tension in, in my view that's, 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 mm. that's, that's crucial for our times, crucial yes. for uh, the transformations of it, crucial for the yoga world, crucially being for Hinduism itself, it's a tension between tradition and innovation. Yeah. We can't dispense with either. 
no, no, no. People, people, te- people tend to feel, well, it's either or. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Yeah. And, and I, think, I think part of what you're saying in your book is that this is the ways in which those with traditional mm-hmm. knowledge and traditional allegiance are mm-hmm. innovating and, 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 yeah. and applying as, um, yeah. you know, if Shankaracharya was alive today, he'd have a PhD from some Ivy League school and he'd be teaching. <laughs> he uh, his metaphors would be yeah. about like Mercedes and iPhones, right? That's what yeah. he'd be doing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyhow. I, I think so, and I, I think uh, I, I also think it's really important to remember because I do, you know, I've I've had some trolling over the years, and and I think because it's 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 easy to kind of try and hijack my reach because I'm quite well known by a number of yoga teachers, and therefore you know people like to have a pop sometimes, and what amuses me about that is that. Um, Although I, you know, I, I am involved in yoga teacher training, you know, my role is, is it, I, my positionality is quite clear. I am, I am not here to make more post-lineage yoga teachers. That's not my job. Like I am, and certainly in terms of the research and, and, and the PhD, I'm, I'm, I'm an anthropologist. I describe a phenomenon that exists and I'm going to describe that to the best of my abilities and with as much kind of truth as I can and as much honor and respect given to the communities that I'm, that I'm serving. Um, but, you know, nobody, nobody has a go at kind of um, meteorologists for, for, for the fact that storms exist. You know what I mean? Like, like. It's so what <laughs> could you, could you, without right? giving too much uh, oxygen yeah. to it, could you give yeah. me a sense of the types of remarks or critiques uh, or the quote unquote trolling oh, that you're referring to? So I can get a sense of what the contention is. It is, it is well, it, it's not, it's not a contention that's in any way based in, in any way reading my research, you know, because it's so obvious. I mean, you sure. know, there are people and, and who what's the, what's the, a, a white what's supremacist, the, for example. Oh, I see, I see. You know, like, like no, we've not spent a lot of time together, but I, you know, I think you can imagine that that's uh, not the case. Also, that I'm some sort of corporate sellout, which, um, considering I, you know, I still don't earn enough money to pay income tax, is kind of I'm not very good at it. If I am, you know, like, <laughs> like I yes, yes, yes. <laughs> there, there are a couple of. Um, would you mind sharing with us uh, sure. the, the, your 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 relationship to practice? And oh, if that's okay. part of your work, part of your being, yeah. do you practice? Are you are you also do you also moonlight as part of these communities or not? Or, <laughs> can you talk to us about that because the the tension between practice and that's, and uh, yeah. study is is so that's at the heart huge. of much of yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is, and it, and it's a really interesting thing. And I, I I'm going to tell you first of all a little a, a little anecdote about yoga scholars more generally because this way. I don't have to out anybody. But I was at the Krakow conference on yoga studies a few years ago, which is the last time we had a big international yoga studies conference. And there was one particular kind of panel discussion where someone asks who in the room uh, would consider themselves to be a practitioner. Right. So this is volunteering information. This is people volunteering that they consider themselves to be practitioners. And 80 percent of the hands in that room went up. This is scholars. This is researchers. This is people you've heard of. And yet 90% 90% of those people don't talk about the fact that they're practitioners in their work because as academics, we're not supposed to. We're not, we're not supposed to talk about that stuff. Now, my methodology and the, and the way I was working meant that I, I, I felt that it was important to be honest about my positionality. And I, and I just feel it's academically honest to say that, you know, I do hang out in these spaces. There's a reason why I knew they existed. And that's because I had come across them and I spend time, in, time with them. Um, so I talk about that a lot in the book as well, what that means for my practice. And, and I think that, like, I think the body of the researcher is implicated in any, re- any research into contemporary practice. 
Um, you know, I think it is equally important to talk about it if you don't practice. I mean, you know, people who are doing in-depth study of contemporary yoga and have never taken a yoga class, that would, that would feel weird to me. So um, I, I think it is important that we talk about this stuff. So, but it does make us uncomfortable as academics to do so. So I do practice. Yeah. I, you know. in, in this in this particular space, in the space of the podcast, yeah. uh, the vast majority, if not all of the listeners, will not take issue with that because it, it would yeah. be it would be sort of intuitive to I think most members of the public that you know yeah. one who is a, is an expert in music theory probably plays an instrument. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, but, you, Why is but, it weird? But I, yeah. but I do understand. Yeah. I do understand. Um, I do understand the tension you're speaking about and it's sort of it in the in many departments it kind of stems mm. from the tension between theology and religious studies right or yeah absolutely or, there's a, yeah. Sure. yeah 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 so yeah. i get it yeah so um i mean it's probably useful to point out that um what's i'm sitting on right now is a meditation cushion on a yoga mat <laughs> this is this is my my so yeah for, for those of you who can't see her which is all of you because it's a podcast yeah uh, she is i can affirm that yeah. this is happening this is um, my office and my office also has you know it has the monitor and the computer at one end of the room and it has a, a four foot long altar at the other end of the room you know that's that's kind of right behind me i'm so yeah it's very much part of my uh my, my identity i'm i started off I'm as, uh, you know, I, I study, you know, I did that thing that a lot of people do where I studied a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And I've done a couple of years of Ashtanga and actually a couple of years of Kung Fu, which is very different again and various things and like done some Hatha Yoga. Um, and actually I, te I did my teacher training in Anyasara Yoga, which is a whole thing because that um the kind of fall uh from grace of anusari yoga and uh, that that was that was my first kind of foray into really thinking about what is it we're actually doing in terms of neoliberalism in terms of honoring the practice in terms of all those different things i mean you know i chose i, I did the teacher training because i was at a studio doing anusari yoga and it was fun i mean it was that it wasn't that serious you know what i mean I, that's where i started um and the more time i spent with it the more it wasn't making sense. The universality of it wasn't making sense. The kind of the superficiality wasn't of, of it wasn't making sense, and it wasn't matching up with my with previous things that I'd done and and, and my other kind of background. And the, the interesting thing is, um, uh, from a kind of belief perspective, and if you, for want of a better word, faith perspective, I'm, my background is much longer in terms of uh, modern British paganism. So I do say occasionally I have a lineage it's just not a yoga lineage and I, I don't talk very often about my teachers but I have teachers and I have a you know I have a path and um it for me it blends quite nicely with my uh with with the yoga but it is two things uh running side by side if that makes sense um so you know so that you know I've been doing that for a very long time um so I've been teaching yoga now for about 12 years I'm um, and uh, doing uh, along the similar path to a lot of post-lineage yoga teachers, I start out with being kind of, this is, this is what I've been told. And then something about that, the way I had trained, stopped making sense. And I wanted to get further. I wanted to get deeper. I wanted to really understand what was going on. And I started to look for other sources of information and hang out in a lot of spaces with kind of respected teachers of different kinds and different places. And 
Um, yeah, and you know, some of those people are in the book. I mean, um, from that point onwards, I've always spent a lot of time in a lot of different yoga spaces. Um, as a result in different kinds of yoga and and also uh, in certainly in the last kind of five to ten years um a lot more bhakti spaces um bhakti and seva really um and I, I did that thing where a lot of people do where to begin with the postural yoga is kind of the main the heart of the practice and then after a while it you know that just becomes a means to an end right you you do just enough postural practice to keep yourself fit and healthy enough to to walk in the world and serve the world in different ways, basically. Fascinating. Why is the subtitle of your book from Guru to Me Too? Can you tell us a bit about that? Um. Yeah. If I. It's an interesting one, simply because um, I made quite a decision at the start of the, the PhD not to look in depth at guru abuse because I didn't want to spend four years of my life doing that. And I didn't feel like that would be a life affirming thing for me to do. It felt like too much. There are people who are doing that work, and I think it's amazing. Someone needs to do that work, but I didn't want to do that. I wanted to look about look at the resistance, at the reclamation, what people do beyond those scandals in many ways. Um, so I think that the book is, to a certain extent, uh, this a story of hope um, for people who you know have had to reconcile with some of the just terrible stories of abuse that we've all had to reconcile with within yoga and. Although I don't go, you know, where I'm going now in my thinking and where I want to think about next is it's fascinating to me that in some ways, in some circumstances, modern yoga, you know, in some forms was very much a superficial kind of almost kind of con job. You know what I mean? Like this kind of we're being sold something that isn't true. And yet the people in those spaces somehow gained a connection that took them to something more authentic. And they may have gone on to find something more authentic in different forms, but like the, the somehow they found the magic anyway. And I think that's fascinating, um, particularly if you're talking about things like Kundalini yoga, for example, you know, where it's maybe not quite as ancient as people think. Yeah. So do you, so is post, to what extent is the phenomenon of post-lineage yoga implicated in our response to guru abuse? I think it very much is. I, I, I say that commonly there are kind of four roots into a post-lineage mindset in terms of contemporary yoga today. So that's, you know, let's talk about specifically contemporary yoga in, in for want of a better word, in the West and transnational yoga. So one very much is uh, finding out that the beloved lineage and that beloved community that you've been part of, um, the person at the center of that isn't the person you thought they were and possibly is kind of deeply, deeply immoral. And, and what do you do at that point? Because the people around you, you know, that community is still a, com a community of, of love and care, right? But to what extent is it implicated in what's happened? To what extent do you, are you able to reclaim the practices involved? Like, do you throw everything out? Do you, you know, you know how, do you, how do you kind of work with that kind of stuff? So that's one route in. Another route in, you know, another another trigger um, for moving into this post-lineage space is maybe thinking that the history you've been taught about yoga isn't what it, you know, isn't doesn't isn't as authentic as you were told. Um, and I, th I think of a lot of people who kind of read Yoga Body, for example, Mark Singleton's book when it came out. But also, they, I've heard stories, this isn't first hand, this is second hand, but somebody told me recently that they'd come across an American yoga teacher who said people have been doing sun salutations on International Yoga Day for thousands of years. 
and international yoga day is six years old <laughs> six seven years old like like the amount of kind of like stuff that accretes uh, to yoga is really interesting so so the kind of realizing that maybe you know people weren't doing um i don't know rocket yoga in the year 4000 bc <laughs> it's an interesting kind of trigger the third one is a very similar one, but, but with relationship to maybe the science and the effectiveness and the health of yoga, um, that maybe that there are a lot of systems within yoga that have come up with kind of universal systems where this will work for everything, for all people at all times in this form. Right? If, if you have any kind of a headache, you must always stand on your head and you must always do it this way. And if you follow these exact instructions, everything will be fine. So sometimes it's about people realizing that maybe there's a diversity of bodies and a diversity of responses to practice and a diversity of possible you know, responses to what's going on. Um, so that's another route in. And I think the fourth one, which is really important, is people just wanting to be in community. Um, and sometimes you find that community be um is wider than your original lineage if that makes sense so those i think are the four roots in um, some of which are more painful than others fascinating do you want to tell us a little bit about the structure of the book the structure of the book yeah okay <laughs> yes there were many times when my supervisor said make it smaller how <laughs> are you going to fit it all in but i what i really wanted to do and this is the difficult thing and i hope it's, i've succeeded is draw a line that goes all the way from the individual introspective perception of the practice all the way up to the kind of social and cultural interactions. And that's difficult. So I, I, I want to find that what the connection is between those things. And that's not a very kind of acad traditionally academic thing to do in that you're supposed to focus on one of those things. It's a very interdisciplinary thing to do. Um, and it involved a lot of kind of deep, deep dive into various different, everything from the neuroscience to the kind of community education side of things. So the book um, starts with an introduction that gives you a sense of this particular community um, and, and introduces the methodology because I think both of those things are quite unusual. Um, so it's, it's kind of useful to spend time and have a sense of what this kind of looks and feels like and what the data looks and feels like. Then um, I focus specifically on three camps. Again, not because they're the most important camps or anything else, but because they offer a glimpse into a coherent community. And I want it because I want to look at the processes of how communities are formed. I need to look need to look at one coherent community in depth. And I move. So there's you know how does that how does the, how do those camps work? Those festivals work, and how do the communities work within them? And then from there we move to six case studies, which are discrete and offered. Uh, first of all, in their own right, to honor the individuality and the kind of coherence of each of those people in their practice. And then I start to knit it all back together. So I start to knit it back together to like, what does, how does practice work? So how does individual practice work? How does teaching work? How do communities work? And it's really all about the processes that hold those things together. So with just as an example, with the individual practice, for example, if you don't have a set form, what do you decide to do when you come to your mat? And how do you decide to do that? And it's something many of us do all the time. And yet, have you ever articulated how that process actually works? Oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> no. So which, well, I had to. <laughs> I had to do that. Oh, it's good. <laughs> I came. And in real simple terms, I'm, what I think is that there's like a, almost a spiraling uh, process of kind of auditing where you kind of figure out where your body's at and where your heart's at, where your mind is, whatever you're working with. 
then there's a process of kind of trying to um, uh, kind of give remedies to that. So, so you know, if like, you know, you do your your body scan or you do your Pawanamaktasana or whatever else it might be, and it's like, oh, actually I'm feeling really scattered today. I need to do some focusing or my right shoulder's really sore today. I need to do some of this. So you do the stuff that you need to do. Uh, then it becomes more of an exploration, experimental thing. And I think this works, whether it's meditation, whether it's postural practice, whether it's pranayama, right? Oh, this, this cycle works because it's about how you figure out what you need every day. And then the final part of the cycle is in some ways staying with the fruits of the practice. There, there's, you know, I think it, there's almost always some form of stillness or savoring or being with um, not necessarily all the way to samadhi because you know that's going to depend from person to person but there is that sense of of, of finding finding a moment of stillness in there you uh recently presented your work over the weekend didn't you i did yeah but where did you present it and how'd that go for you well this is a uh at, yeah at the at the yeah it was fun coming to do the talk it's it's um I would say the one thing I miss about it, which I always do with these kinds of things, like there's a real by the way, for those of you, uh, uh, she's referring to the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies uh, online online weekend. The weekend, uh, so it's, weekends. Yeah, it's really lovely doing that kind of thing where there's lots of different scholars, and and I can, you know, I, as a kind of a person, as a kind of participant, is really brilliant. I think um, as a person presenting, the only thing that's missing is you don't get to hang, you don't get to hang out. Like you don't get to do the downtime and hanging out with other presenters and going, how are you and what things and share your research and stuff. So there's a sense of you kind of turn up and you do your thing and then you go away again because, you know, there's always other things to do, like walk the dog or cook dinner or whatever else it might be. Um, but no, it was it was it's it's it was nice. I think it went well. People asked really nice questions and I tried to give an overview of the research without trying to give the whole of the book in one. It's uh because people always want you to, you know, tell me about the PhD or tell me about the book in two minutes, right? And you think, I used 80,000 words for a reason, <laughs> because I needed every one of them. <laughs> your, your elevator pitch. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. I'm getting better at the elevator pitch. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. What, um, what most surprised you about this research? What most surprised me? Um, surprise intrigued like what stood out mm, for you or or or, or chapter you most enjoyed you know like what really yeah. was one of your most fun pieces well um i, I can give you if i like i can give you a couple from different parts of the process which might be nice so um the bit which i probably should have realized in advance was realizing when i when i because i when i went in to do the field work um like i know those spaces and i knew what i was going to do and it was all going to work and then i kind of realized that i was I was beholden, entering into these spaces as a researcher, I was beholden to give the best possible representation of the widest possible diversity of activities on offer, which meant I had to go to a lot of different practice sessions of different kinds. Um, and because these aren't, you know, just, just postural yoga classes, even though that they're, even if they're postural yoga sessions, they're the kind of camps and festivals where everything has a kind of a, a deeper intention right and a, a kind of a spiritual aspect to it so you're going through all these transformational processes which meant that it was fine at the first one because it was about four days long by the second one which was six days long um by about day five i was starting to get a bit twitchy because i'd done like 12 14 different transformational yoga practices from different different teachers and different things in a very short space of time 
I'm, and that was a lot more intense, I think. I should have known that was going to be intense because normally you just go to the things, you tend to go mostly to the things you already know, don't you? you kind of think, oh, I'll do some of this and some of this and some of that. Um, I wasn't, I was also charmed and pleasantly surprised by the support of the community itself, the generosity and the generosity of communities, informal communities of practice continues to be a joy to me that like the generosity the ways in which people will share with you um, and I think as much as anything else that proves that these aren't competitive and commercial spaces because the you know the 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 time that people have given me the stories that people have given me the things that they've shared with me all the way to you know Letitia Valverdez who contributed the photo some of the photographs from the book was just like take any photo you want and she's that you know it's the cover of my book and a number of the photos in it she's a professional photographer she takes beautiful photos um and she just said you know anything you want you take so that was amazing and then increasingly the 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 applicability of this model for understanding yoga in different spaces at different times continues to be fascinating um you know it has much wider application than i think i realized and i think that's as much as anything, sometimes why I get into trouble with it, because in my head, I'm I'm just still talking about a few hundred hippies in a field. Um, whereas I think in some ways, the people that have kind of attacked the research kind of had more of a handle on it. They know it's more important than that. They know that what this is really saying is that grassroots, network, grassroots networks work and are a source of joy and are a source of hope and support. Um, and if you're massively invested in a particular kind of hierarchy and a particular kind of control, um, then that can feel quite threatening, I think. You ask a question, uh, one of the questions you ask uh, in the book pertains mm. to um, uh, negotiating standards <laughs> in this type of, in oh, yeah. this type of context. Mm. Uh, tell us what you find there, what you at least propose there. Yeah, it's, uh, this is the, uh, in some ways, in insolvable question. I'm, I mean, to, to, you know, I was one of many, many people who was asked to give feedback on the Yoga Alliance uh, new standards. And that was a really interesting process. And it's important to, 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 to repeat the fact that we were asked to give feedback. We did not write those standards. We were asked to feedback on them on, on a number of occasions. And a number of the things that we were saying to them I think are irreconcilable because um, you know how do you create a standard um, or how do you, you know, a how do you create a standard that can work um, for all different kinds of yoga particularly if you really want to start to honor the real diversity of possible practices involved in yoga like how do you create a stand like how do you create a standard of yoga that will cover a havan or you know like this is or a you know or a saver opportunity or a, the, the, you know, it's so much more than just are you making sure people are safe when they do a sun salutation. So, so I think that 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 is a really big issue in and of itself. Um, I think the confusion between standards and standardization is massive. So people assume that if we standardize things, somehow that the standards will rise. Um, they're not the same thing, right? Making everything the same doesn't mean making everything the same quality. Um, it just means making everything the same. Um, but I actually think there's a deeper and a wider problem. And I think the, 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 like the coming, the rising issue within, within contemporary yoga that people are going to start talking about a lot in the next couple of years is the issue of accountability. So even where we have 
in theory, standards of practice and codes of practice and scopes of practice and all these different kinds of things, who's actually holding you accountable for that? Because you can sign, you know, you can be a member of this or that organization and you can, in theory, adhere to their ethical standards. But what are they actually going to do if you transgress them? Because I do not know of any yoga bureaucracy that wants to do anything about that. And that's the irony of people talking about, you know, the British wheel or yoga alliance wanting to become the yoga police, because I think the problem actually is much deeper than that. They are not going to become the yoga police. We probably don't want them to be, become the yoga police. But if they're not going to be the yoga police, how do we keep students safe? And that is increasingly going to be an issue as uh, practices of kind of, you know, the more kind of, if you like, standardized practices of asana and pranayama, as they start to move more into therapeutic spaces, as they start, as we start to move more and more into teaching that those kinds of yoga in schools and hospitals and, and, and similar places, those institutions are going to want to know that the people going in are safe. And what we do is say, and how do we solve that? And I do not know the answer. Is the problem you're pointing to, is that problem related to the post-lineage nature of yoga that you're studying? Or is this, uh, would this be the, the case regardless? I think it's the case regardless. And I think it has more to do with the very diversity of yoga which is what it makes it so um, so beautiful and so vibrant as a practice is the fact that when we say yoga, we can talk, we can be talking about so many very, very different things. Yeah. Um, you know, we're constantly talking about yoga is wider than the commercial implications. Like I say, it's not, it's more than just a few sun salutations. It is, um, you know, it is a, 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 a puja. It's, it's, it's a, a meditation group. It's a, uh, you know, it's 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 a philosophical study group or whatever. You know, all of these different things can be part of what yoga is. So how, bearing that in mind, when, you know, when, if you're invited to go and teach yoga in a school, what what is the person asking you in, expecting you to be doing? And what are you offering? And should that be negotiated on an individual basis? Should there be some some sort of standardizing or regulating body? Or what is your, what is your, Personal opinion, having researched this. My, my personal, and it really is my personal opinion, because, you know, as much as anything, I'm going to be fascinated to see what the yoga world decides as a whole. It's going to be interesting to see where we go with these things. Um, it is my opinion that standardization um, and it kind of would, will only narrow um, yoga to its most commercial forms, to its most orthodox forms. Um, and uh, we will be left with exactly the stuff that makes yoga teachers really sad i mean i haven't met a you know there are very few yoga teachers that you meet who aren't personally sustained by that wider understanding of what the practice is you know even if you even if all you're allowed to teach is a few asana like most of those teachers they're doing meditation pranayama they're doing other things they're doing study and so on and so forth um, so I think if we allow mainstream society to reduce yoga to that, we are doing a disservice, um, to so many things. We're doing a disservice to the roots of yoga. We're doing disservice to entire South Asian cultures. We're doing disservice to grassroots traditions of, uh, 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 in, in around the world. And I think that would be a terrible thing if they are allowed to, to, 
a decide what yoga is. You know, I think you might agree with me on that. <laughs> so, you know, to be to be really honest with you, I don't really have nearly enough direct exposure to have an opinion. I'm just sort of thinking it through mm. as we're we're speaking mm. because I'm not I'm not in the yoga world in terms of what yeah in the sense you know I teach many yoga teachers. Yeah. Um, but I, I typically teach on mythological and philosophical and wisdom traditions because yeah. they're looking for the ones who yeah. come to me anyhow, they're looking for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 And, and, and just the thought that comes to mind is um, 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 it's sort of like, okay, well, there, there can't be regulation by virtue of a strict parampara. There can't mm. be some kind of effective bureaucratic regulation. Mm. And it seems to me... Um, to be honest, I don't really know what I think. Uh, because on the one hand, I think we all benefit from structure and discipline that's often mm. exposed externally. That's how society functions and why most of mm -hmm. us don't murder the people that we sure. want to in the moment. On the other hand, this is there is no way to control the diversification and the, mm. and the, the, the you can't hold back the, 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 the tide. Mm. And so my sort of thinking goes to the um, individual to individual case to case basis as with yeah. so many things it'll depend on the teacher that you're working with and the relationship there or the institution it has to be more of a communal yeah. a community tight-knit sort of what works for me yeah um, yeah and that's what and yeah and I think communities of practice and communities of care where people are kind of holding each other to account um either they're imperfect but i think in many ways for me personally i think they're the best we have um you know if someone it, you know if i have i have i will have yoga teachers who will come to me privately and say you know i'm thinking of taking a workshop with such and such what have you heard you know what do you know about this teacher or that teacher what do you know about this trainer or that trainer and many of us are in quietly in those positions of of, of being asked for recommendations and they're not ones i would make publicly because you know but we all work on those whisper networks, right? We all know. Sure, sure, sure. Sure, sure. People will come and ask her for a recommendation or yeah. just insight. Yeah. No, sure, sure, sure. It's hilarious. I was, um, I think, with my last interview, or maybe a couple ago. Well, your research reminds me so much of of, of hers, which is why she's on my mind, Amanda Lucia. Oh, yeah. Her, um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's related in some way. And mm. before, before or after the call, she said, you know, funny thing. Well, uh, she teaches at the university. One of my mm. students was asking about you. They came to me and said, you know, they, they were considering taking away your courses. They found you. And, and obviously the student wants to know, like, you know. Is this guy, is this guy, is, is this yeah. guy good? Like, is yeah, good? Or, 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 you know, exactly. Is, is he a cult leader? What's going on here? You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> because these are the questions you have to ask. And, you know, and particularly as, you know, I have become associated with, you know, survivor's rights in yoga as well um, in many ways, because, you know, I've done some work on that as an, as an ally and an advocate and you can imagine some of the questions i get are is this guy safe to be in a room with you know <laughs> i get those questions that is a telling that is a telling uh that is a very telling vetting question i have to say it is sad it, and, it, and it's incredibly sad but it is a question that people ask people feel they have to ask because sadly not being a safe guy to be in a room with still isn't enough to get you um uh you know What's the word? Cancelled, I guess. Removed. Yeah. And again, <laughs> you know, no one's saying you shouldn't be like, I'm I'm much more comfortable with processes of community accountability, which say than than in kind of the more kind of uh, the policing of yoga that says this person should be stripped of their ability to teach yoga ever again. I think I I don't know about that. 
what I can tell you is, you know, me, the people that I care for, I will try and keep them safe by saying, I've heard some things that maybe you might want not want to go near with, near, near this guy. You know, the, the approach you describe, I think, to my mind is comparable to, to what uh, I was saying earlier in that, mm-hmm. uh, in the absence of a governing body, yeah. it's sort of the community who have to sort of keep each other safe, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and luckily there's no shortage of choices of teachers or programs or... No, no. There's so, no, there's no, sh- no. So then I think that the, that's when I think some of the conclusions of my book become really important because they're about, well, in which case, how do these community processes work and how do, you know, what are the ways in which we manage these things um, and how can we keep each other safe? And you know, it's one of the things, if, if yoga bureaucracies come to me and uh, it was the same with Yoga Alliance when they said, you know, how can we reformulate our policies or our standards and so on? And I'm not really... Like, I will give feedback on that, but I'm not really interested. What I'm really interested in is, are you giving yoga teachers chances to hang out and to spend time together and, and, and learn from each other and be a community? Because if, we, if we're not able to do that, if, if yoga teachers feel isolated and atomized and, and stuck in their own communities out on their own, then there isn't a community that, that can do that. Um, but it's somehow less acceptable. It's like, it's an easy sell to say, oh, we'll write a policy that nobody's ever going to read again. Um, then to say, you know, have you thought about having regional get togethers over chai and a nice Bhakti sing song, right? Yes. And, and COVID notwithstanding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but yes, oh, yeah. Um, definitely. <laughs> There's something you mentioned earlier that I'd like to circle back to. It was sure. sort of, I sort of, you know, my job is to showcase your work and your voice, but I, I have mm. these questions that I file away that I circle back to. And it was actually before you started talking about the the, the nuts and bolts of your project, mm. you you shared what I think is this interesting perspective of, hey, I have this uh, this research interest, obviously I'm mm. of a scholarly bent mm-hmm. that goes without saying, and I have this research interest, and hey, the PhD program is the perfect sort of you know, mm. or a way to channel that, you know, to, yeah. you know, the, the, the riverbed's there for me to, to churn out my, my, my material. Yes. I would like to hear more about that because of a conversation I had recently with a colleague mm. that I may or may not talk about, anonymize, obviously, mm. talk about on the podcast, but um, do you, do you think that that's different now? And, or do you think that there were other ways whereby you could have produced the research in the absence of that? program and I don't have I don't have I don't have an answer that I'm looking for I really want to know your opinion yeah Um, I think it's an interesting one um and um and it's a conversation it's 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 a conversation I'm I'm having a lot now I am in that post PhD world I'm and in there are decreasing opportunities for postdoctoral scholars to do good research in many different ways. So A, there are, there are, there are very, very, very few jobs. I don't think people realize quite how bad the situation is in terms of, in terms of actual positions. Um, and where there are positions postdoctorally, um, they tend to be heavily focused on such a volume of process and teaching that there's actually very, very little research time. In many ways, I have much more time to research things than than I, uh, you know, uh, colleagues within institutions are. So I think that the question—it's a very, it's a very meaningful question. How do we do good research outside of the academy and outside of institutions, or 
or as independents within that wider scholarly community. And that fascinates me and, 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 it, and it, you know, it speaks to all of, uh, all of the things that make me happy around kind of uh, being outside of institutions and grassroots networks and so on and so forth. Um, and it's, the question is, well, how do we do that? I'm, I needed someone, interestingly, to show me the ropes to help me through the process. And I needed good people to have good conversations with me. The supervisory process, when it works, is an incredible process because you, you're working on something that is inherently unique. Like every PhD project, pro, the research project should be unique. By definition, the, like I used to have this almost like burned into my memory. Um, a PhD is a substantial contribution to original knowledge. That is the definition academically. So it has to be substantial and it has to be original. Um, and therefore it's not going to tread the same route as someone else's, which means on the one hand, it's a very like individual and therefore can be quite a lonely process. You're figuring this out, but therefore it's a, it's kind of a form of apprenticeship. <clears throat> you have to do it with at the very least good supervisors who can test you and challenge you every step of the way. And, um, you know, I came out of every supervision. I have lovely supervisors and I, I, and I, I honestly adore them. Um, but you know, they were those supervisions were challenging and the, the kind of 12 months before I came up with that definition of post-linear yoga, where they kept saying, but what is really going on here? What it named? I was going, isn't this fascinating? And they were going, yes, but you have to define it. Yes, but you have to define it. You have to tell us what this is about. You have to do so in a way that, um, is understandable to, to me. Um, at its best, those processes are phenomenal for producing new knowledge in, 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 within a scholarly sense. Um, and they also, it also relies on a lot of good connections with peers. You know, the number of conversations I've had at conferences, I'm like my first academic article was co-written, um, you know, with a colleague, you know, I still work in collaboration a lot of the time. And what I'm, I think what I'm painting is a position is, is a picture of academia as it should be rather than necessarily as it always is. In many ways, I was very lucky in my peers, in my discipline and in my supervisors. But I think it's perfectly possible to have those same processes outside of a formal institution. And I think we wanna be figuring out ways to do that. Um, yeah, that's, that's fascinating. So in terms, of, in terms of how to thrive as an academic mm. post PhD, yeah. um, without that position, that's yeah. something that I've stumbled upon quite yeah. by chance and out of necessity and it's a whole story. Yeah. And you know, talk to alumni at my, alma mater the other day called the self-employed scholar or, mm. you know uh, sort of inspiring people to think of yourself already as a producing mm. scholar and produce and find a way yeah. to earn your keep and and if if that and your track job comes great and if not great yeah. and if you want it if you don't want it you know be a scholar yeah. be networked be yeah productive yeah. do what you're here to do and, and 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 find a way to teach online or consult to, to pay yeah. the bill so that piece i've sort of mm. accidentally figured out in space I didn't yeah, think it was yeah. possible. I'm not even sure it was possible five years ago. But the last five years has shown me that it's mm. very possible. Yeah. The piece that I don't have any experience with is the piece that this very, very bright, driven um, uh, person came to me to ask about. And the question was about the PhD program, because I also had mm. uh, a decent program, and I also had an excellent advisor in mm -hmm. that I went from the University of, of Toronto to the University of Calgary, and it wasn't for the University of Calgary nor the demographic of Calgary, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was for the advisor, right? Because I, you know, yeah. I knew 
me, I always had great mentors, great teachers. I had a guru at that point. So interestingly enough, that is whether it's a guru, whether it's a PhD advisor, whether whether it's a business guru or a mentor, mm. that that's essential. That's an essential piece of, of, of human development. Yeah. And so that I think that, that anybody would need regardless. But I'm just trying to think mm. if someone has say a master's from mm. a from a, from a, from a good uh, program, a solid basis in their discipline, and the thought experiment is coming to me whether or not the person cannot just find mentorship and support and write a good book and write the good book yeah write yeah. the good book and just yeah. research right yeah. and the, yeah. it's a bit of a thought experiment that i thought i'd run by you because i think the world's changed so much even in the last five years and i'm yeah, wondering yeah. whether yeah no it's it's people can produce good research yeah. with less structured training not less rigorous training obviously yeah but Clearly, more adaptable, less structured. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. 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 And I think, and I, I you know, I, I'm obviously, I'm not going to name names for obvious reasons, but you know, colleagues in the academy and in various places in various institutions are are, are cheering that idea on because they would, they want to figure out a way of doing this outside of universities because the, you know, because those systems are becoming so, um, so Excellent. kind of locked down for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like mm. it's lifeless for many of them. So how do they work outside of it? And also, I think that the amount like the amount of money going into universities in terms of fees compared to the amount of money that actually goes to people producing knowledge at all stages of academic work is shocking. I am really lucky in publishing with Equinox, who are a really lovely academic publisher. They are not the most like, you know, they're not one of the big, big, big publishers. But what they do is they've looked after me. They've looked after my book and I will actually earn a small amount of money from it, which is an academic writer is unheard of. It's unheard of. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I don't think people realize that, for example, when you're talking about peer reviewed articles, most people don't realize that the um, the articles are written for free. The articles are peer reviewed for free. The, the journals are edited for free. The whole thing's produced for free, disseminated for free. And then the, 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 the journal publishers take all of the money. And yet at the same time, your biggest issue as an independent scholar is finding enough of an institutional affiliation that you can get into a library because otherwise you can't get access to that research. So you need two things as an independent academic. I think one is a, 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 an email address that has an act, you know, a dot act at the end of some kind or dot act at UK here in the here in the UK. And you need you need library access. And, you know, for many of us, um, that's what we really need. Now, I'm part of a group called Altac UK. And one of the things we want to try and solve is, can we get enough status as a research institution that we can offer that to independent scholars? Because that you then you really start to break the deadlock on that. We, we, I just, I, I, be exciting. I noted the, I noted the, uh, the affiliation mm. in, in, in your yeah. bio, but I just sort of intuitively went down this, this road with you and mm. I think we have a lot to talk about actually uh perhaps after the podcast we'll we'll, mm. we'll, we'll chat about some of these possibilities um mm. I, you know I'm honestly I, I pinch myself mostly because I don't know how any of this is possible that I'm doing essentially I have two books out with Rutledge the Hindu mm. studies series right mm. not too shabby for a guy without a professor really good yeah right yeah 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 like I'm a you know it's pretty cool essentially <laughs> yeah so but the but what folks don't understand is all of that publishing that we do in the absence of a professorial paycheck that's seva yeah. that's yeah you it's have safe. to yeah. so all the work you put into that 
is work that you're not billing for anything yeah. and you have to find the work and bill for the work to support yourself yeah. to do that yeah. and that's why it's a bit of a challenge but because of online teaching it's not impossible anymore no no it's uh, not it's, it's uh, not and and we're seeing we're starting to see open access independent journals being published you know, like if things are starting to free up i think i think i think we'll see it. i think it'll happen I'm, but the same is true for research. You know, I mean, I'm, you know, when people talk about the Happy Yoga Project, for example, that was based at SOAS and people will say, oh, you know, they got a million pounds to do research. And somehow they think that kind of that's divided up between the researchers. Like, like I know, <laughs> I know the money that they were on and it's, it's not, you know, um, in some cases, uh, not quite a living wage. Like the amount of money that researchers are on. Um, and again, when we're talking about uh, when we're talking about kind of scholarly interest in the yoga, I think there's an assumption, um, you know, that, that, that still the, the scholars here are earning significant amounts of money and within institutions, they're not, then they're really not, but the, the amount of work that's going on, um, and in many cases, you know, that there, there are, there are many things that are more lucrative <laughs> to be doing than being a scholar. And you can only squeeze so hard with that before scholars start to think, well, if I'm doing it for the love of it, why am I doing it within these institutions and within these publishing um, arenas, really? Um, well, that was along the lines of the advice I was giving to this very bright young woman mm -hmm. who had mm -hmm. some graduate training in Hindu studies, broadly speaking, and mm -hmm. actually, actually happens to have a, a, an advanced terminal degree in a whole other discipline. Mm -hmm. And... I was sort of having this thought experiment with 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 them to say, look, if your dream job isn't to be a professor, for example, and you just want to produce research, yeah. then let's find a way to cobble together what you need. Yeah. You know, yeah. and yeah. do the research and the proof is in the pudding. Write yeah. a good book. Yeah. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And get out there. But yeah. what do I know? I have I'm sort of a cowboy at times. So um, um <laughs> I, I just have this deep i have this deep 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 sense that i can't quite put my finger on that mm. we're not going to it'll, it's imaginable to us right now what the humanities will look like in 100 years at the yeah, academy absolutely absolutely it's unimaginable to us yeah. now within a, within a generation even yeah. and i just sort of sense sort of network silo scholars yes that, yes that, that yeah. function independently for a variety of reasons, I think that's a path forward for, for folks who want to do this sort of work, call to do this work, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there was, um, it made, it got me really excited. I, I can't remember exactly what this was called now, but I came across a master's um, a couple of years ago that uh, in, I think it was in sustainability studies, okay? And it was functionally, like it was technically affiliated to, I think it was the University of Barcelona. So that's where they're getting their institution. Someone there had allowed them to kind of, you know, uh, be associated with the University of Barcelona. But all of the teaching, 90% of the teaching was online. It was bringing in scholars, academics, and the activists from around the world. I mean, the quality and the range of people involved was really exciting because you were having people dropping in from like New York and, you know, various places to, to give lectures. And then they did intensive, um, essentially summer schools uh, where you come together on an eco retreat farm in Eastern Europe. And it was brilliant as a model. And you not, and it was, and, and you just knew that that the the you know a it was reasonably priced, and b that the money was going to the people actually doing the work. It wasn't going to these massive institutions. 
And Pots I just thought it was really interesting. Yeah, I thought that was a really interesting model. I was like, there's something in there. Like, why could you mm. not? I mean, I know that there are like, I think there are five master's programs in the world for yoga studies, for example. I know a little bit about four of them, not so much about the one in Korea, but to my knowledge, the four of them are all self-financing, i.e. they bring more money into the university than they cost. And yet most of them are under threat every year because the universities are like, oh, we don't know if we can finance this niche interest. I've been told that my work is niche interest and that's why I can't get a postdoc. And I think that's phenomenal considering um, that I can write a blog post and I can get a bigger reach than I, I can get a, a reach on that blog post. I'm sure you can do the same, you know, with the podcast that most academics would kill for. You know, like the numbers mm -hmm. of people engaging in our work is so much bigger than traditional academia. There's, there's this parallel between the subject of your book and the subject of what we're talking about now. And that, yeah. that's that for me, I sort of, uh, you know, when I'm at, say the University of Calgary gave me an alumni, alumni mm -hmm. giving an alumni talk to mm -hmm. graduate students, just calling them to action, showing, mm -hmm. showing what I've looked out to be able to figure out or do, showing various platforms. Uh, Yogic Studies is a fantastic example, but there are a number of scholars mm -hmm. who, are, who, are, who are traditional scholars who are now mm -hmm. offering private online courses. I know three mm -hmm. of them. Mm -hmm. you know, uh, this is growing and, and um, for me, this doesn't mean that uh, down with the academy, I actually want to innovate it so it'll survive. Yeah. You know, yeah. this sort of, you know, this sort of quality controlled production of knowledge mm -hmm. <laughs> that mm -hmm. sort of safeguards against the wild west of the information age is crucial. Yeah. But yeah. the institutions yeah. that, the institutions that once supported that are decaying without a question. Yeah. Without question. Yeah. yeah. And so right. we need to find a way to preserve the function mm -hmm in a different sort of packaging or structure yeah and, yeah uh, well, and i think we I know, can honestly no but i think we can innovate and evolve on that in ways that big institutions can't um and if we you know if we can prove a path that other people follow that's an interesting thing um you know i think i'm, I'm really fascinated that uh like i think it was uh two years ago altec one of the little bees that we had in our bonnet um, was around the inaccessibility of conferences, specifically how much money it costs as an independent scholar to go to a conference. People have no idea. Bearing in mind, again, that you're paying to go and work. <laughs> you're paying, mm, this doesn't quite work. Um, you know, nobody there is getting paid. Everybody's pay basically pretty much everyone's getting paid to be there. I'm uh, sorry, everyone's paying to be there. So uh, one of the things that we was we did so there there was due this year was the um, uh, there was a, a major international conference on religious studies that happens uh, every five years and it's due to be in New Zealand which is great for people in New Zealand there is no way that any of us with non institutional support were going to get there it just wasn't going to happen and we emailed them and said I would you allow would you allow um, uh, papers to be offered digitally I mean given you know, the current climate. And this is way back in kind of, I think, January or something. And the it wasn't quite treated with disdain, but there's generally, a, like a year ago, if you said Resistance, that to academics, yeah. there was a sense of like, no, come to no, the but, but But this is um, one of the great boons of COVID. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is the world now has caught up to what a small mm. percentage has known for a good five to 10 years, the power of online education. Yeah. And yeah. now it's, 
now to the point where I'm sure post-COVID, a number of universities will be holding a good number of their courses yeah. online. Well, not just that, I'm all tech. Uh, I, can't, I can't kind of talk about this in detail yet because uh, it's not kind of pinned down, but all tech have been approached by a forward thinking academic institution to help them put an online conference together. Because not because we don't know when COVID is going to end, but because they've realized how much more accessible it is for scholars from across Europe, because otherwise, if you, you know, to come to the UK could be a really difficult thing for people to do. Um, so, yeah, I think more and more of that. All right. Absolutely. I mean, this year, I mean, the American Academy of Religion, I think, was partially mm. online. I attended the Dubrovnik conference in September. It was my first Dubrovnik yeah. conference. For those of you listening, it's a conference of, on uh, Sanskrit epics and Puranas, which is, I mean, like it's as specialized as you can in terms of my own mm -hmm. research. And so I, I presented from mm. this very spot in the corner of my home office in Toronto. And, mm. and uh, you know, it's necessities and mother invention, I guess. Yeah. But the AAR... But the AAR was re was still really expensive. That's what they haven't figured out yet. They put it online, but they didn't make it significantly cheaper. Because they because they had signed the I used to do events yeah. uh, for my masters and <laughs> my BA. I used to yeah. do catered events. Yeah. And yeah, they signed yeah, yeah. a contract at least a year before, and they were already exactly. paying a whole ton of money for spaces. Exactly. Yeah. You know, crickets for the crickets yeah. to be warm. In yeah, 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 yeah. Whereas <laughs> you know, whereas Altac put a conference together in about three months, and it cost cost us a couple of hundred pounds. <laughs> that was it done. <laughs> yeah. No, I think there. I think there was. Oh, speaking of which, that was the very. I mean, the the weekend schools at the Oxford Center for Studies. They were in person, but we did one online, and it was so successful. Mm. basically said look they've they asked me to do this one uh this was the first one i did for them organized for them and sure. just yoga yoga popped in my brain I'm like yoga it's gotta be on yoga and that's how it came about and i mean how else can we have scholars from california mm. scholars from uh, mm. you know um, eastern time zone scholars in the uk presenting mm. at the same event and then people get mm. to benefit from from this 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 wide range of expertise yeah. And it's because of the online piece now, the trade-off is you don't get to sit with somebody, sit with somebody in between the conference. Because yeah. a conference is so much more than the papers, obviously. Yeah. That immersive yeah. experience yeah. you can't duplicate. Yeah. Um, oh, we have uh, gone way off topic, but perhaps in a parallel field of <laughs> study to post-lineage post academy, yeah. <laughs> post-lineage yoga from guru to hashtag me too. Is there anything else about the book that you hoped we would highlight or you want to say? I am... Um... Let me see. Um, there is actually one thing, um, and I kind of talk about it on the website. I'm, my only concern is that yoga teachers specifically will think this is a how-to kind of a book. Like there's, there's a book to be written um, next, which is about uh, contemporary issues in yoga teaching, because it, it, it inherently leaves the reader, if you're a yoga teacher, with a lot of questions how do we actually do this in practice how do i you know how do i reconcile with things like the rise in the need for trauma sensitivity or accessibility or other things and my my task for this year was going to be to try and kind of write that book as a series of conversations with a, with, with with good people um, that i know doing lots of this kind of work i'm but then the world went a bit strange. Um, so I haven't yet written that book. Um, and, and that, if you like, will be my kind of act of service, my act of saver back to the yoga community um, uh, to as best we can get good people to have good conversations on how you actually do this stuff in practice. Like how do you actually survive and thrive as a yoga teacher? 
And I'm kind of glad I didn't write it if I'd have written it and then COVID, like the book would have been um, out of date uh, very, very quickly. Um, but I, I just want to say that, that 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 is on my mind and that information is coming, I hope. Well, you preempted my my typical final question, <laughs> which is what are you working on next? And you've, you've told us what you're... Well, kind of. Or is there more? There well, is, us well more. there is one of this. I'm not even sure if I should really announce this because we haven't pinned it down yet. But um, Equinox have asked me if I'd be interested in doing an editing uh, job for them. They have a series of kind of five minutes. So they do archaeology in five minutes or, um, uh, uh, you know, religion in five minutes, religious studies in five minutes. And the idea is it's a collection of essays by scholars, but each one of those essays can be read in five minutes. So it's kind of a bit like your 101 courses. It's like all the key issues, just bam, 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 and, and quite bite-sized, quite digestible things. They're interested in possibly doing one on, on yoga. And uh, that sounds really fun and exciting if I can find the right person to do it with me. Um, so we'll see. I think that could be a nice project. Sounds fascinating. We'll have to have you back on the podcast to talk about yeah. that. Uh, yeah. Great. And you mentioned, uh, we'll post in the podcast description the various links, uh, but sure. you mentioned a website, a website about your book or your personal website. Yeah, the, the website is about the book postlineage.yoga, uh, uh, which uh, is nice and neat and easy. I, I'm lucky to share a house with a, a programmer and web designer, so that was that was easy. Um, so it's just a really nice place to have. It, it will have everything in, in one place. So, for example, it will at some point it will have the link to this podcast when, when, when this comes out. Um, so there's links to where you want to buy the book and, and you know anything you could want to know about the book is, is on there. Um, my personal website is massively due an overhaul just because I end up wearing so many hats. I, like I still teach. I, I teach uh, mostly specialized uh, specialist yoga to um, young people with disabilities, for example. Um, you know, so that website is sprawling, um, but it is wildyoga.co.uk. And uh, yeah, we keep saying a new one we'll, soon. Sure. We'll, we'll post both your, your personal website and your sure. book website and might even be able to post your your the talk you gave at uh, the OCHS yeah. just a few days ago and then people will have lots to engage Good. yes <laughs> so i'll sign off momentarily maybe you can stay on after i sign off formally sure. so we can talk about some of these interesting parallels mm. um for those of you listening we have been talking with dr theodore wildcroft i can't help but say that our our trusty administrator at the OCHS pointed out that that sounds like a fantastic name for a superhero. <laughs> I don't know if I'll listen to the podcast, but if he does, he might have turned a shade of crimson. Um, uh, we've been listening uh, to an interview with Dr. Theodora Wildcroft on her brand new Equinox book, Post Lineage Yoga, From Guru to Hashtag Me Too. Uh, for those of you listening, these are your instructions. Stay safe, keep listening, keep reading, and keep contemplating the tension between, you know, uh, hierarchy and uh, community. Take care. <laughs>